Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. I'm Kristen Cornett, a holistic nutritionist and functional wellness practitioner at Tiny Feet. And I'm Dr. Haley Knight, a naturopathic doctor and certified nutritionist at Synergy Women's Healthcare in Portland, Oregon. Our goal with this show is to educate and empower couples with the knowledge they need to get pregnant, stay pregnant, and have the healthiest baby possible. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We certainly hope that you're able to find everything that you're looking for here on the podcast. But if you need additional resources to help you on your fertility journey, you definitely have some options for how to learn more from us. If you're looking for personalized one-on-one guidance for your health or fertility struggles, you can learn more about working remotely with me, Kristen, by visiting my website at tinyfeet.co, or you can schedule a free 20-minute phone consult right now through the link in the episode description. If you're local to the Portland, Oregon area, you can learn more about seeing Dr. Haley in person at her clinic by visiting drhaley.com. We've also created an online course together called Fertile in Five Masterclass, which walks you through everything you need to know to prepare for a healthy pregnancy. Visit bit.ly forward slash fertile in five to learn more about the course and get signed up. If you'd like to get a free preview of what you can expect in the Fertile in 5 course and learn all about the most important nutrients and supplements to include in your preconception and pregnancy routine, you can sign up for the free mini course called How to Choose the Best Prenatal Supplements, and the link to enroll is in this week's episode description. You're listening to episode 66, where we interview nutritional therapy practitioner and author of the four-week endometriosis diet plan, Katie Edmonds, about many of the underlying health issues that can contribute to endometriosis and how to develop an effective whole body healing protocol to reduce your pain and restore your fertility. We actually discussed Katie's book a few weeks back on the podcast when we shared our top recommended books for fertility and pregnancy, so we're really excited to have her here this week to dig deeper into this very complex topic of endometriosis. In the episode, Katie shares her personal journey with endo and infertility, and then we start diving into some of the most important aspects of healing that simply aren't being shared with most women diagnosed with this condition. While there might not be a cure for endometriosis, that doesn't mean that you're destined to live in pain and struggle to build your family. In fact, many of the common symptoms associated with this disease are not even driven by the presence of the endolesions themselves, but are actually a result of other health issues that tend to occur alongside endo, such as gut dysfunction, nutritional deficiencies, blood sugar imbalances, and immune system dysfunction. This episode is going to help you completely reframe the way you think about endometriosis and open up a whole world of options that you probably didn't even know that you had to start feeling better and give yourself the best possible chance at a healthy pregnancy. Speaking of underlying health issues that can drive endo, I highly recommend downloading the free Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant quiz through the link in this week's episode description. You'll learn which of your health symptoms may point to one or more of these underlying issues that we're going to be talking about today, and you'll also get some practical, actionable advice on how to start addressing them. Okay, so let's get down to introducing you to our guest and get started on the episode. Katie Edmonds is a nutritional therapist certified through the Nutritional Therapy Association and a Paleo Autoimmune Protocol certified coach. She's also the author of the four-week endometriosis diet plan and the endometriosis and endobelly guide ebook. She lives on the North Shore of Kauai next to the biggest mahogany forest in the United States, fun fact, and is absolutely passionate about helping women with endometriosis. 
You can find show notes for the episode along with links to Katie's website, book, and ebook on the Tiny Feet website through the link in the episode description. We hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, welcome Katie to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So you uh, have done a lot in the endometriosis field and how that relates to whole health and vitality. And um, I know that you became really passionate about this particular subject because you Mm -hmm. have experienced this uh, disease yourself. So could you start us off by sharing a little bit about your personal journey with endometriosis and infertility? Yeah, definitely. Um, Every woman has such a unique endometriosis story. And mine was really lucky because I was diagnosed very early. Um, The average time for diagnosis is 10 years from the onset of symptoms, which is, you know, it's horrible for organ preservation, etc. But I was diagnosed um, within a few months of having this really chronic, debilitating pelvic pain. So it wasn't just a painful period. It wasn't even a painful period. It was, um, it was all the time. So I was thinking cancer, you know, God knows what, maybe some sort of weird deep infection. And when the doctor came back and said endometriosis, I was pretty devastated since there's, you know, they say there's nothing you can do. I was told at 23 birth control, um, maybe uh, chemical uh, menopause um, surgeries. That was kind of going to be the, you know, the rest of my life until I had kids and could have a hysterectomy. Like that's the hope you get when you get an endometriosis diagnosis. Um, And for me, the stranger thing was I had such a huge health decline after my diagnosis. I think a big part of it was I was taking so many painkillers. No doctor told me not to do that. They probably assumed I wasn't taking 800 milligrams of ibuprofen every day. Um, I did gluten-free, dairy-free. And for me, that really helped. I had read about that in the endometriosis diet. Um, it helped a lot on certain symptoms, but then I didn't know what to replace those foods with. So I just replaced all my gluten fare and, um, dairy with gluten-free fare and weird dairy products, right? Like all the, the strange chemical soy, canola oil, um, foods you find at the store that are fake cheese. I just wasn't being, um, proactive as far as healing. I just thought by cutting out stuff, I could help endometriosis symptoms and pain. Um, it was over the course of the next eight years that I really got worse and worse to the point after my second surgery, the doctor said, okay, well, now's your time to get pregnant. You, you get this sort of a year window, the doctors say, uh, to get pregnant after surgery, it's your best chances. And we started trying to get pregnant and it just wasn't happening. Um, and even though with endometriosis, you kind of expect that it, it could take longer, you don't really understand that once you put out, you know, take out birth control, um, that you won't get pregnant because we just, you know, in our society, you just think you'll fall pregnant so easily. And that wasn't my case. Uh, so it's kind of the, that was my endometriosis journey, which led me to my fertility journey. And this is, uh, this is the amazing intersection of the two where I was able to put my endometriosis in full clinical remission. And that's something I didn't know was possible and no one ever talks about. And in the community, we have this phrase that there is no cure. And I think it's a really popular phrase because it brings awareness to the severity of the situation that you can have chronic pelvic pain um, to some degree forever. There's no cure. But whereas they talk about remission 
and healing with cancer and other autoimmune, it's just not thrown around in the endometriosis community. So I was really surprised when I started my fertility journey and all the endometriosis symptoms disappeared as well as me reclaiming my fertility. Um, and the story is, is kind of interesting because I had, I had gone on vacation and I picked up this book by Weston Price, uh, Nourishing Traditions. I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of this Nourishing Traditions approach before. And the book was everything I detested as unhealthy. It was like, <laughs> eat butter, eat egg yolks, eat organ meats, like organ meats are superfood. Um, smother your veggies in oil. And I'm here like a, a recovering vegetarian vegan for like over a decade. These foods to me were going to kill me. So I got really angry at this man for inventing this diet. And I thought about it with anger for a few days. And to the point I had to start looking him up. And I think it had touched me deeply without me realizing it because it was everything I wasn't doing. And he was talking about these people being so healthy um, so, you know, of course, it, as a novice, I learned, oh, he didn't just make this diet up. He actually studied ancestral diets and people who didn't have chronic disease. And wow, they had perfect teeth. And wow, they got pregnant really easily, like bing, bing, bing. So like, you know, I got angry, I did acceptance. Um, and then <laughs> after a week, I was like, well, I'm just going to try this, like, whatever. So I signed up for my raw milk share. I got a bunch of organ meats. And this is like, disgusting, right? Like, I was just swallowing things without tasting them. Um, but within a month, my chronic fatigue listed, which was huge for anyone dealing with chronic fatigue. It's a different type of fatigue than just being tired. Like you can't get out of bed in the morning. Like yeah. you can't do, go for a walk. Um, my, you know, skin came back to life, so to speak. I wasn't this like white zombie. Um, my fertile, um, symptoms of fertility, <laughs> they came back. I didn't have any fertile quality cervical fluid. Um, I had ovulatory disorders, like all of that disappeared to the point that, you know, it took a while, but it was two years from when we started to try to conceive. I got pregnant naturally. I had this incredibly healthy pregnancy. My baby, who's now two years old, is so healthy, you know, coming from someone who was sick their whole life. Like sometimes it still makes me tear up that I could have such a healthy child. And two years postpartum, I'm 34 now going on 35 and I'm healthier than I've ever been in my life. You know, it, that keeps getting better for me rather than me, you know, digging into a pit of postpartum despair or, you know, having another endo fall. Um, so that's kind of how the two you know, intersected, I guess. And I'm very lucky to be here today doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, you know, I can relate. Story. Yeah. I can relate to the being sick your whole life and, and having that, you know, yeah. concern over baby's health. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's always freaked me out on this whole journey, especially like being in this field now. And I guess maybe it, this is the wrong way to say it, but I guess knowing everything that could go wrong, it just is totally. like, oh, yeah. I, have, I have all the risk factors to like not have a healthy kid. And it's, it's just really, it's inspiring to hear about these types of stories when you struggled for so long and, you know, you were able to give your body what it needed and, and it did exactly what it was designed to do for you, which was give you a healthy baby. Yeah. yeah you know, there's this, this thing I used to say all the time is my body hates me. And yeah it was such an incorrect way of looking at it. Like my body was screaming for help with one symptom and I didn't listen. So it gave me another symptom and it was just still screaming to this point. I thought my body hated me, but it was just, it needed me to be giving it something completely different. And that's how I see mm -hmm. symptoms now. But at the time it's, you really, you know, it's hard to see past that. Yeah. That's so interesting. It re actually reminded me of like, 
a little toddler, like your two-year-old where it's, they're, they're like saying something you can't hear what is they're saying. And she was just like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. And you're like trying all yeah. these different things. And, but so obviously your toddler doesn't hate you. She, he, you know, they just need something. <laughs> so, um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, wow, that's just such an incredible journey. And so you've come from just really not knowing much of anything about nutrition or, or your body or how anything works. And now you're writing books on endometriosis and writing diet plans and um, really helping out women understand what endo is on a full spectrum mm -hmm. where um, it not only affects your just your reproductive system only, but it really is a full body, like inflammatory condition. Yes. And so if you can just tell us a little bit more about that and help our listeners understand what other body systems are involved with this disease. Yeah, I think the, the common misconception, and this is with women who have endometriosis and even the doctors who are diagnosing it, is that it really is just a solely gynecological issue. Like there's something wrong with your, your uterus and your lady part. So you just go and see those types of doctors. But what we know that endometriosis is, is um, like you mentioned, it's a full body systemic inflammation issue. So your whole body is on high alert. This isn't just inflammation confined to the pelvis. Um, it's, you know, from your brain to your toes, there's something going on. We know that it's an autoimmune related condition. So it's not an autoimmune disorder like you can go test for an autoantibody. There's, there's none that they at least know of right now, but there is, the basics is your immune system isn't working correctly. There's something going on. Most women with endo do have an, an associated autoimmune disorder, even without realizing it. Um, almost all of them will test positive for an autoantibody of some sort. And then we know that the immune system within the pelvis isn't acting, it's not acting right. Like it should be cleaning things up, right? Like it should inflame and then de-escalate the inflammation to cool everything down. That's what your immune system does. So why isn't it doing that? Um, we know that endometriosis, um, its strength and progression is associated with really specific nutrient deficiencies and with chronic stress. Like there's, there's definite research on both of those that show they fuel the growth of endometriosis. And then um, it's a gut issue. Like they're finding out this more and more, which is really fascinating, but there's a huge bacterial component to endometriosis. Um, and there is even oh, this new research that, that hypothesized if the gut microbiota may be involved crucially in the onset and progression of endometriosis uh, to begin with. So there's, there's all these things, right? Like, so, okay, there's, there's chronic inflammation, your immune system is misbehaving, um, there's some gut issues here, uh, vitamin and mineral deficiencies and chronic stress. And the cool thing about those five is that um, you can do these things through diet and lifestyle, right? Like it's not all of a sudden just confined to your pelvis and in the role of specialists, you need to seek out like the best in the world. You can do these five pillars at home and see if that really affects your endometriosis, um, puts it in partial remission or full remission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so very true. And I think you, you put it so perfectly well. It's like, you've been researching this for a couple of years. <laughs> you just yeah. Like, it's like, oh. am I everything? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to get more into, we're going to talk a little bit more about the gut um, issues with endometriosis because it is so vitally important. And I feel like this is mm -hmm. brand new research kind of on um, the cusp of 
finding out more information on how to actually heal endo. And you've done a lot of that research too. And um, I like how you mentioned how you can do it through diet and lifestyle. Um, but we, I do want to touch on what are some different ways that endometriosis can contribute to infertility? Obviously, this um, affected you personally. Yeah. Um, and again, I got diagnosed very early, so I didn't have significant damage to my organs. So endometriosis, it's, um, it's you know, the endometrium-like tissue that grows outside of the uterus. Um, and every month when you have your period, that same tissue sheds and it has nowhere to go. It has no you know, literal vagina to come out of. So it hangs out in your pelvic cavity. And what that can do is start searing your organs together. Um, it creates scar tissue. It creates adhesions. Um, all these things can damage your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, um, your uterus, your cervix. It can move elsewhere in your body. But you know, just for the fertility aspect of it, it damages the very organs you need for reproduction. So that's like the very specific way that endometriosis can affect fertility. And the, the thing to remember about endo is there's four stages, one being the least severe, four being the most, but they're not necessarily correlated with symptoms. So there's many women who go in dealing with you know, persistent infertility and they open them up with a laparoscopy to see what's going on. And they have stage four endo with no symptoms. So that's something to know if, if anyone out there is thinking they don't have endometriosis um, but they're dealing with infertility that it's worth going and getting checked out because that can, and it does happen. Um, but then besides the mechanical stuff, so say you have, you know, I say all of the mechanics are go, your fallopian tubes are open. They've done the ink dye test. Like, you know, that the egg and sperm can meet, there's nothing getting in the way and the egg could implant what's happening. There's a few things that is associated with endometriosis specifically with, um, that type of infertility. And they did some, some research actually just came out recently on the peritoneal fluid of women with endometriosis is um, it can actually inhibit the ability of sperm to work more or less. You know, this was, they looked at four different um, factors of sperm health. And by the time the sperm met the peritoneal fluid of a woman with endo, it kind of like died, you know, in a simplified sort of way. So it can actually be, they, they didn't say why. So it could be, you know, a number of different components, but it's just, the fluid that lines your pelvic cavity may be really detrimental to sperm being able to meet the egg. Um, women with endometriosis often have a lot of inflammation in the pelvis, and that inflammation is creating a sick environment. So if you have a little fertilized egg, it may not be implanting if there's a lot of inflammation in your uterus. Um, there's, you know, I mentioned the gut aspect of things, and there was one study that found the menstrual blood of women with endometriosis has four to six times more LPS, which is this really toxic byproduct of um, pathogenic bacteria, than women without endometriosis. And when you think of, oh my gosh, the inside of your uterus is also colonized with a, a toxic pathogenic bacterial substance, that's not going to make a great, you know, loving home for a baby to be growing for the next uh, nine to 10 months. So I also like to remind women that, you know, these things aren't here to stay necessarily. These are just, you know, associated symptoms that you know, pop up when you have endo. Yeah. 
And there's a lot that can be done um, to work on some of these things. And, you know, that's, that's a big part totally. of what today is about. And that's a big part of what your work with clients and your book um, is all about. So let's dive a little bit deeper uh, into this gut health thing. Cause this is, this is one of the biggest things that comes up with women with endo. This is the first place I typically go with clients, obviously after making some adjustments to diet, but this is a big area that requires some investigation and attention. So talk a little yeah. bit more about some of these connections that we've had, that we have between endo and gut health. You've touched on a few already, but let's like really dive into this topic and, and help women understand yeah. what's happening here. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about because it's so cool. <laughs> so in our um, in the endometriosis community, there's a word that we use endobelly that is is basically sums up how so many of us have digestive issues. So it kind of it usually refers to this enormous enormous bloating a lot of us have, and it's either after eating or all the time. But it's one that you know that the ironic things that women have trouble getting pregnant and they look five to six months pregnant after eating, like really painful, intense bloating. And then the other thing symptom wise that is, is noticeable is women with endo are often misdiagnosed with IBS or co-diagnosed with IBS. So it's, it's a huge um, partnership there with symptoms. So that just goes to show that there's an enormous association between endometriosis and gut issues. You could be anywhere on the line from having just bloating and indigestion to having like really serious constipation or diarrhea or both, right? Like switching off, so to speak. But the cool thing, if, if you look past the symptoms, you know, rather than saying, oh, IBS and endometriosis are two uh, issues that are just often we see them together. You, what, what research is starting to uncover is that the the significance of dysbiosis in the gut is actually contributing to the endometriosis. So there is, um, there's a number of studies. One came out showing that, you know, as a big picture, women with endometriosis have dysbiosis and that uh, more specifically was an overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria and an undergrowth of beneficial bacteria or a diversity, the diversity that you're after. So that's your big picture dysbiosis. Okay, so you have some, some more bad guys than you should or overgrowths of you know, what shouldn't be there. Um, what the pathogenic bacteria produces is that byproduct I mentioned called LPS. So um, the LPS from the gut then is going down into the pelvis and that's what they've actually found um, bacteria had colonized within endometriosis lesions. So we used to have this thought that it was just an estrogen-dependent disease, but new research is coming out showing it's actually partially fueled by bacteria. And the bacteria is stimulating and fueling um, both the inflammation and then therefore the growth of the endometriosis itself. Um, that makes it a huge bacterial problem, right? Like without that bacteria, would it be spreading as far? Would there be as bad of symptoms? Would the, the um, uterus be colonized with the LPS and the painful periods as painful since we know there's so much inflammation going on in the pelvis? Now, there's this really cool study on adenomyosis and adenomyosis is the sister to uh, endo. It's where the endo, basically the endometriosis grows within the uterine wall. And why this is problematic is because you can't excise it the same way you can of superficial endometriosis. The only way to get rid of adenomyosis, which is inside, you know, your organ, is to remove the organ. So a hysterectomy is the only way to get rid of adenomyosis. 
But what they did is they noticed it behaved like some tumors do, and these certain tumors were also um, had a bit of a bacterial component to them. So they isolated the adenomyosis cell in a petri dish, and they added berberine complex, which is an antimicrobial. And lo and behold, the adenomyosis um, experienced cell death. So it either shrunk completely or it shrunk a lot, which this is a preliminary study, but it really goes to show that this could be much more bacterial than we even realize. Like we're just kind of connecting the dots between, wow, um, endo is fueled partially by bacteria. It's colonizing the whole pelvis. Like um, it could be changing the environment of the peritoneal fluid, um, preventing fertility, all these different things. So that opens doors to new treatment in the future as they keep coming out with studies. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really amazing. I, I feel like we are at this stage in research where we're starting to really understand just how much bacteria and our overall microbiome has to do with our risk for chronic conditions of, of all different types. I mean, we're just now starting to understand how much that microbiome affects the functioning of every other body system. And it would totally make sense that something that is so inflammatory in nature would be so related to mm -hmm. bacteria, which are partly responsible for training our immune system. And that kind of makes an totally. interesting connection like with the onslaught, like how this disease forms and the onset of it. And you know, we don't have a perfect answer for why endometriosis starts in women. But this is this kind right. of new new delving into research on the microbiome is an interesting connection that we should be paying attention to and a really good reason for uh, women to be paying attention to their gut health before they get pregnant because that is going to have an impact on female babies, microbiome development, and potentially long-term risk for conditions like this. Yes, and um, for the infertility directly as well, uh, if, you, if you are struggling to get pregnant because I'll, I'll give a cool client example that I had a client come to me and she had a year of terrible miscarriages. Like um, it was like within 10 to 14 weeks, had to get DNCs for both of them. Very traumatic. And she came to me with these stories and saying, well, I really want to get pregnant, but I have endometriosis. And when I looked at her symptoms, I was like, okay, well, endometriosis is the least of your worries. We know you can get pregnant, but what else is going on in your digestion is out of control. So we had to get tested for SIBO. She definitely had SIBO, um, got treated. We did tons of work together for about eight months. She turned 40, eight months, you know, had stage three endo before a surgery and said, can I start trying now? And she said, yeah, well, go for it. And then basically in that same email was, oh, I'm pregnant. You know, she got pregnant that very first try at 40 years old with significant endometriosis and uh, two previous miscarriages, carried the baby to term, um, very healthy pregnancy, and she just had the baby a few months ago, we didn't touch the endo, right? Like you don't, as a nutritional therapist, or when you're doing diet and lifestyle stuff, you can't reach into that pelvis and do anything with the endo. But by supporting her systems and taking out what in her case was a really huge infection of the gut that was contributing to everything, she went on to then have the baby of her dreams. That's an amazing story. And I think it's, I think it, it gets really hard, especially with age at, at a certain point, because doctors really push women when they get above 35 mm -hmm. to like, you need to do something with your fertility, like right now. And it's yeah, like, totally. yeah, I mean, you need to be aware of that. That is definitely something to consider. And we, we had an episode several weeks back that was talking about, you know, some of the considerations that you should think about on your fertility journey and age and timeline is one of them, but health is another one. And 
You know, in a lot of cases, you're better off spending the time to get healthy, even though it, you know, might be a little uncomfortable to spend extra time when you're over 35 or in this case, you know, with this client pushing 40, it might be uncomfortable to take a break and spend that time to really get healthy, but the benefits are significant. The payoff can be really significant. Yeah, absolutely. And And going through the pain of a miscarriage, no one wants to repeat that. Yeah, I think in this particular situation, any conventional doctor or reproductive endocrinologist would have pushed for IVF. And, you know, IVF, when you have endo and PCOS, just really the miscarriage rate is much higher and it's just so much Mm. more expensive. And, you know, I would imagine, um, you know, that's a hard decision where you're like, should I wait eight months <laughs> to work on my health? Um, and then hopefully it will happen. Or should I follow what these, you know, really smart doctors are saying and say, just go to IVF. But in this particular case, you know, you're really rolling the die when it comes to like, are you going to have a miscarriage? If, even if you do an embryo transfer, um, are you healthy enough to even carry that pregnancy to term? What's the outcome going to be postpartum? Yeah. So the investment and that's is definitely well a, worth it. Yeah. That's, um, it's something that's important to understand for women with endometriosis who their mechanics are actually preventing them from getting pregnant is that that pregnancy prep is just as important. Like it doesn't matter that sperm can't meet egg. Like we're so lucky to have science and technology that can, you know, do something like IVF for you. But if your egg's not healthy and that sperm's not healthy and then your body is really sick once they implant that embryo, you know, your chances of carrying it are still slim. So no matter who, you know, can't get pregnant just, you know, in in all natural ways, it's still just so important to start to tackle. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we are all about preaching preconception prep, regardless of where you're at on your journey Uh on this podcast. You know, if you're experiencing significant health issues, it's about, you know, taking that functional approach to get to the bottom of that. But even for people who don't necessarily have any reason to suspect that anything's wrong, there's a lot that we can do to optimize the situation to give your baby a much better chance of, of developing normally and growing healthily into a beautiful child that doesn't suffer from a lot of these chronic issues that many of our children are today. Yeah. So let's switch topics from gut health to another thing that doesn't get talked about enough with endometriosis or really with women's health and fertility issues in general. And that's blood sugar regulation or more Mm. likely dysregulation. So how, <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, most of us experience that to some degree or another in our health journeys. And so talk about how poor blood sugar regulation can contribute to symptoms and severity with endometriosis. Yeah, I kind of call blood sugar dysregulation the endo elephant in the room. And it's because, you know, just about everyone with endometriosis has blood sugar dysregulation, sometimes terrible. And you could say that just because everyone in the United States pretty much has blood sugar dysregulation, right? So like most people just have it. But in the case of PCOS, it's so directly related to the majority of PCOS cases. And it's, I think you can consider it a way to treat PCOS, can't you? Can you say treat with that? With um, managing blood sugar and insulin? Yeah, like for PCOS. I think, yeah. I think yes. you, yeah, yes, yeah, so you can treat. So with endometriosis, you can't, there's, there's no studies out there that are associating blood sugar dysregulation with the ability to like treat endometriosis right. as a disease. 
But um, since everyone has these symptoms, the really interesting thing I find is, especially, you know, I get clients coming to me with really out of control blood sugar dysregulation, but they're blaming their endo for, you know, some chronic stress, some anxiety, maybe sleep issues, definitely energy re- regulation issues, hormonal imbalance, like, duh, that's the endometriosis's fault. But their blood sugar is so out of control. And you have to remember that blood sugar dysregulation is the number one way to create chaos in your hormonal loop and your body. So it's your whole lifestyle that could be contributing to that hormonal chaos way more than endometriosis. And this is why I think there's so many huge converts right now to kind of the keto movement and even the the carnivore movement. I saw a lot on that on Instagram before I popped off on an Insta break. But, um, But there's really true converts because not that these diets are necessarily the healthiest, especially the way a lot of women are are doing them or necessarily approaching them, but it's just that they got the blood sugar dysregulation issue out of their lives. And that was such a contributing factor to their misery that they feel amazing without doing anything else, right? Like it's that big of a contributing factor to certain things. You have the, the chronic stress, your body is this ancient being that is really complex on a lot of levels, but it's still very simple is that when it feels stressed, it figures it's a fight or flight moment. Like you see a bear on the street it escape from the zoo and it stands up on its hind legs. Well, your body better work to throw as much sugar as possible into your blood so your cells can eat really quick and you can run the fastest you've ever run. So your body doesn't know the difference between that and that like huge cold pressed carrot juice you drink for lunch with nothing else. You have just as much sugar in your bloodstream and your body, you know, it thinks maybe that bear is there on its, on its legs looking down at you like your lunch. Same type of stress. So that stress chronically day in, day out, you know, for some of us, for, for me, since I was a kid, like I just thought being hungry all the time and having really huge energy swings and energy slumps was totally normal. Like the word hangry in our society, like people throw it around because it's like funny because everyone's hangry <laughs> before <Yeah>. lunch. <laughs> but when you look at it, it's actually causing a lot of the symptoms. Um, and for some women, it's like their night or day. Like for one woman I worked with, she was my first client. And she had stage four endo, adeno. Um, she had tried to get pregnant for two years and nothing. So we did really low hanging fruit. And this is the best way to approach diet and lifestyle changes. She did a low carb diet. Like there was, she had very apparent blood sugar dysregulation issues. And three months later to the day, like she's, her symptoms kind of started coming back. She was like losing her energy, blah, blah, blah. And she realized she was pregnant. It was the only thing she did. So that in her, you know, her journey and everyone has a different journey. <laughs> some people got, some people might be blood sugar dysregulation. Um, but it was, it had that big of an effect on her body that it wasn't, you know, her disease as much. It was her blood sugar issues, keeping her from getting pregnant. Yeah. It's amazing how big of an effect that has. And, and I think that there's obviously in the medical community, they really look down on the power of diet and lifestyle to have such a huge impact on hormones and fertility and just overall mm-hmm. health. I mean, there's really no training around it. They're taught about how generally how blood sugar and insulin works, but really with the intention of being able to prescribe medication to manage it when somebody gets yeah. into like a pre-diabetes or diabetes state, but they're not necessarily being taught how to optimize that before a problem like that that's diagnosable really ever presents itself. And so, so many people totally. are just living in this state where they're in these, these huge roller coaster moments of blood sugar throughout the day. And it just totally destroys your energy and it does absolutely stress your body. Mm-hmm. And our, 
our bodies are so intelligent. Like if we're experiencing significant swings in energy and we have these sense that resources are scarce at certain times, or, you know, we're being mm-hmm. chased by a bear or something, that's not a good time to reproduce. Totally. And that's when your body starts to save yourself rather than it's like infertility, your body's protecting you <laughs> from, you know, all the inputs that your cells are receiving, that it's, you need to put those, you know, those inputs away. And the easiest way to stop is the, well, the first one is really blood sugar dysregulation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that brings us to another topic, which is some of the biggest misconceptions about diet for endometriosis. And, and mm-hmm. blood sugar is, is one of these things that really needs to be considered when we're talking about this. But there are a lot of women who are intentionally avoiding foods that they need to heal. Some of the foods that we talked about in the beginning of the episode that were so instrumental for you recovering your health. Um, and they're over-consuming others that might be making things worse, such as with blood sugar regulation or gut health. Mm-hmm. So talk about that and, and tell us, like, what are some of these misconceptions and, and why is this happening? Why are women being steered towards some of the wrong foods and, and ignoring some of the ones that could be really helpful? Yeah, well, I guess I, I, you know, I, I dealt with this on a personal level, um, coming from a long time vegetarian background and I do like vegan on and off and the endometriosis diet that it was the first one I read. So I, there's so many other approaches now, but this is like the original endometriosis diet cookbook. You know, it's cut out, um, what it considers inflammatory. So we have the usuals, right? It's like caffeine and sugar, um, and alcohol. Like, okay, those are obvious ones that you could cut out for lowering inflammation, but then it's like red meat, um, I think chocolate, you know, most it's basically plant-based and it doesn't really talk about anything that you add in. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't even specify oils or anything. So like canola oil and all those are okay. So you're basically eating, you know, grains, beans, um, fruits and veggies and anything made with those types of products. So it's really easy to fall into a really radical blood sugar roller coaster from adopting an endometriosis diet. Um, it's, and it's, it's interesting when you go from something like a standard American diet to suddenly saying, Oh, I need to eat more whole foods. And I've seen a number of clients who've come to me eating whole foods, but still having really Richter blood sugar dysregulation because they're really filling up on grains and fruit. That's the basis of their diet is like starches and sugars, even if they're whole food starches and sugars. So it's, it's a bit misleading that even if you switch to whole foods, you can start, you know, you will feel better maybe than the processed foods, but you can still have pretty bad blood sugar dysregulation. Um, there is one study that they used to reference the, the, the need for women with endometriosis to lower red meat consumption. And it was that long-term nurses health study. I think it's like 15 or, or 20 years now yeah. that they've been doing it. And what they found was an association with women who ate more red meat were more likely to develop endometriosis. And the thing about that study is it's, it's, just going off a a questionnaire and that nothing is isolated. So when you really delve into that study more, you find the women who are eating more red meat are also smoking more. They're drinking alcohol more. They're eating a ton more sugar. So you could pull out any one of these things, or you could say, wow, it's that really unhealthy lifestyle that you imagine someone, you know, I guess I don't want to name a spot. I don't want to offend anyone, but you know, your aunt or uncle who eat out all the time and they smoke and they drink and they eat a lot of weird, gross factory farmed red meat. Like, that could definitely implicate your body, you know, to develop endometriosis. Um, But that's the only study. So what this does is it prevents women from eating foods with a lot of the nutrients 
um, that we need. So like iron and zinc are really huge, um, really important nutrients that we need women with endometriosis. They know that women with endo are actually so zinc deficient compared to a woman without endo. They could be eating the same diet. There's nothing here about a difference in diet. It was just some women have endo and some women don't. They looked at their zinc levels and the women with endometriosis were so deficient in zinc that the study suggested you could use it as like a pre-screening of if a woman does have endo or if she could potentially um, develop it. Like she is, she's so significantly depleted in zinc. Wow. So these are nutrients, you know, we need, yeah, mm-hmm. we need from some animal foods. And I think right now with society, everyone's pushing for the vegan and it's, um, it's become a political rallying call in a certain way. Um, I just know when I increased animal products, you know, uh, grass fed, you know, there is as well sourced as possible. We have a lot of grass on Kauai. <laughs> like, yeah, a lot we of do. Grass. So we have a, yeah. So we have, you know, a lot of grass fed beets here and it completely changed my life. And I work with clients to help them introduce these types of foods to help, um, you know, reverse their nutrient deficiencies that they need to be eating less uh, gluten-free pasta and more, dare I say, liver and heart. You know, these foods that our palates aren't accustomed to eating, sardines, salmon, cold water, fatty fish, low starch vegetables, um, a lot of foods that they're not like um, Instagram worthy. They're not like Pinterest perfect. Um, They're hard to adapt to if you're used to eating kind of the bread and butter, the bland standard American diet fare. But um, they're the really healing foods that can take you from being stuck in bed to living a normal life. Yeah, we do definitely have this idea of a plant-based diet being the picture of health. And, And there are a lot of reasons for that. I think there are a lot, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, organization behind the movement to push that out into the public and probably not as much organization behind the movement that just says eat real food. And there's lots of people that fall into different camps within that dietary approach. But I think there's probably the most people and the most organization and the most, dare I say, money um, behind plant-based advocacy. And um, that is being pushed out in some really big, you know, documentaries and things. And it's, it, mm-hmm. it, I guess it makes logical sense to people like, oh, this fresh, like clean way of eating as opposed to these heavy animal foods that like weigh down your system and clog up your arteries. I guess we've been fed that, that same line about fat and saturated mm-hmm. fat and animal foods in the standard American like nutrition guidelines for such a long time that it's just a really easy, logical jump for people to get to, oh, well, clearly a plant-based diet is optimal. I think in the the case of fertility and pregnancy, there's just really not enough emphasis being placed on what specific nutrients those foods limit or completely eliminate from your diet. And, you know, we've talked several times on the podcast about plant-based diets. We've gotten some flack for it (laughs) from the audience. You know, when people see, we have an entire episode that's all about the considerations to think about and the nutrient deficiencies that are possible on a vegan diet. We talked about that way back in episode 17. We're still getting one star podcast mm-hmm. related to that episode oh, no. because it rubs people the wrong way. You know, it's just, it's a controversial topic and it's one that people have a lot yeah. of feelings about and it's not just about health. It's about all these other things that you mentioned, you know, the right. political concerns and environmental concerns. And we try to address those mm-hmm. as much as possible on the podcast, but it's, it's a very nuanced issue. And I think for people who are struggling with chronic illness, health has to be the priority 
and limiting foods that contain yeah. critical nutrients is, is not a great strategy when you're trying to recover from chronic illness. Yeah. And I think that's like a big, a big disconnect is how in a society we've demonized foods for so long that when you're dealing with chronic health problems, it's so much easier to just start demonizing things in your diet. And it's this big emphasis on remove, 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 exclude, like we'll just drink water and breathe air and we'll be really healthy doing that. Um, it, there's such a you know a small emphasis and it's growing thanks to you know shows like yours and um, the wonderful nutritionists out there talking about the nutrient dense density you know the importance of a nutrient dense diet uh, but that is I'd say you know going back to your original question that's probably the biggest the biggest issue within the endometriosis diet community is that huge emphasis on what you remove without any discussion of what you replace and it's the reason that I did have you know a really huge health consequence from removing all these foods without knowing what to replace them with and then becoming severely malnourished. Like my hair was snapping off. <laughs> like yeah. I didn't have any protein left in me, but I was so against the idea of protein and animal foods. And, um, it, it, you know, it hurt my heart for a long time too, before I changed my mentality around it. So I get where so many women are coming from. And when you're trying to do the right thing all the time, I guess it's important to with if you're listening to this and still unsure about eating animal products or not, check in with your body. How sick are you? And are you willing to put aside some of these preconceived ideas of what health is to just try it for a few months? Like, can you try eating some animal foods for a few months? Try eating some of these weird foods um, and come to terms with it on, you know, without stressing out too much. And I, that's what I had to do. I had to put everything I believed on a shelf for a little bit. It was when I had some really huge health rebounds that I realized, my way of thinking was really wasn't helping my body and it was hurting it. And sometimes we just have to, we have to change and adapt with the world. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that. And I, I, I like the idea of adding foods in instead of eliminating and Kristen and I have talked about that a lot. What I'm finding with my patients is that when they, you know, we prescribe some type of plan for them a, a dietary plan, and then they're so focused on what they can't eat and then, and then they, yeah. they find out is that they're actually, they end up not eating enough foods and, throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And then their nutrient, you know, the, not only did they eliminate foods, but they also started eliminating a lot of calories as well. And, you know, that's just not going to be a way to health. And uh, what's interesting is, um, I mean, I don't want to go too much into it. I'll probably talk about it later, but I just did this nine day cleanse for myself and it included so many fruits and vegetables. Like I, mm -hmm. my belly was like busting with how much it required me to eat. And I, at the end of it, I was just like, Oh, that's like, that's a cleanse <laughs> where you just are like shoving your face with like as much nutrient yep. food as you possibly can get in you. So like a huge salad for lunch, for lunch, for this, um, cleanse I had to do salads for dinner too, for three of the days. And it was just, um, you know, juices and smoothies and like just so much, um, fruits and veggies. And it was very eye opening because I was like, I, you know, I'm very well educated, obviously in nutrition, um, being, you know, working with what I'm working with. And I don't, I don't even get half that on a day-to-day -day basis, like mm -hmm. with my normal diet. So I think people, especially like the food prep and everything that goes into it, like I really did spend a lot of time food prepping and doing dishes and that was really, really tough. And so I, 
we, I know we're going to get into your book here in just a minute, but um, one thing with your book that I really liked about it is that you emphasize um, bulk uh, processing or like um, bulk meal planning where you prep everything ahead of time and you freeze a lot of yeah. things and that just like is such a game changer. So it's the only way, right? Or you'll go crazy, mm. especially if you have kids or a job, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, you're living a life. Like it's, it's really hard to stay on top yeah. of whole foods cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just a, a, a little bit back on that. I, I loved how you ate all those veggies. I think the biggest, like you, it's hard to sum everyone up into, you know, different categories, but one thing everyone does have in common besides blood sugar dysregulation is they're not eating enough vegetables. Um, the, the diet I preach, you know, I kind of mentioned some animal products that were weird, like some organ meats and maybe some cold water fish, but the other really huge emphasis for a woman with endometriosis is fresh vegetables. So rather than plant-based being, you know, grains, beans, starches, fruit, and vegetables, you're going to really want to eat as many vegetables as possible. And it can seem crazy. Like what you said, like when you actually start eating that many vegetables, like some people have two to three cups a day and I'm talking two to three cups per meal. Um, It it can feel like a lot, but that's the only way to really start getting those antioxidants in that we know from, um, you know, medical literature to, it can reduce the size of endometriosis implants. Um, It can reduce the severity of endometriosis uh, symptoms. There's um, there's a, a reverse correlation of endometriosis symptoms and antioxidant intake of and so this is just how much people are eating versus their symptoms that the more antioxidants women ate, the less their endometriosis symptom severity and, or yeah, the more antioxidants, the less severity and the less antioxidants they were eating, the more severity, like it was pretty direct right there. Yeah. Um, and then there's another study that showed direct consumption of vitamin E that the less vitamin E a woman ate, they did actual physical measurement of the inflammation in the pelvis and it was higher. So if you're deficient from vitamin E, then you're going to have higher inflammation, deficient in antioxidants, you're going to have worse symptoms. So in order to get enough antioxidants all throughout the day, every day, you know, to actually combat a disease as radical as endometriosis can be, you need to be eating a lot of vegetables. Completely. Yeah. I just uh, came across a paper recently that was talking about specifically measuring the oxidative stress in the environment of the uterus in women with endometriosis. So specifically showing that we're that our free radical production in women with endo is outpacing our antioxidant intake mm-hmm. or our ability to yes. produce it internally, such as in the case of glutathione. And so, yeah, those, those antioxidants, I mean, as amazing as some of these healing animal foods are, you're going to be getting a lot of those antioxidant nutrients from the veggies that you're taking in. And I just want to like clarify the fact that when we're talking about eating some nutrient dense animal foods, we're not talking about that necessarily being the cornerstone of your diet. Like small amounts of these, (laughs) very small amounts of these foods can have a massive impact on the nutrient density of your diet, but you're still Mm -hmm. eating the majority of your plate. It's coming from vegetables, but because some of these animal foods are so nutrient dense and they do contain more calories, you don't need to eat that many of them to get all of those benefits. And I would just say for the women that are thinking about transitioning and maybe starting to include some animal products in your diet. Do you have some um, ethical concerns about that? Like start with something like clams and oysters, because those are some of the most nutrient dense and probably the least concerning from an ethical perspective, because they don't have a central nervous system. So like if you do one thing, like clams or oysters, and that's going to be the most ethical animal product that you can have, as well as one of the most nutrient dense. Boom. Mm -hmm. 
I like that. <laughs> um, and this takes, it's a good transition into our next question is um, about malnutrition. Oh, excuse me. Malnutrition as a contributing factor to endometriosis. So, um, mm. what are some of the nutrients uh, endo women tend to be low? And I know you already mentioned a few zinc and iron. Uh, are there any more? And where do we find these in specific foods? Yeah, well, there's a ton. And so a, a lot of this is research that I've done and put together myself. So I think there's, there's more research out there. But the, the specific studies I found was like a vitamin E, vitamin C, vitamin A, D, uh, omega-3s, zinc, I touched on that earlier, uh, selenium, and iron. And the, the thing about it is it could be either a deficiency in what you're eating or exactly with what you mentioned that a woman with endometriosis needs a lot more. So like the RDA for vitamin C is at 60 milligrams per day. And I think that was just to prevent scurvy, right? Like something, an acute vitamin C deficiency. But there was a study that looked at putting intravenous um, uh, vitamin C at 1,000 milligrams per day. And that reduced both the size and abundance of endometriosis implants. So it shows that um, maybe you're malnourished, you don't have enough of some of these nutrients, or maybe you just need to eat a lot more. Um, that zinc study I mentioned, how um, the direct correlation between zinc deficiency and endo could potentially help pre-screen women with endo or those who are susceptible to developing it. Omega-3 supplementation. So there's, uh, there's a number of studies on omega-3s, and they're like the ingredient that you need for anti-inflammation, right? It's like if you have a fire, you need water for the fire hose, and your omega-3s are is the water. If you don't have the water, you can't put out the fire. So there's usually a huge deficiency in omega-3s because most people aren't eating them to begin with, um, but then also maybe because you just need a lot more water for that inflammatory fire so to speak. Um, so there, there's studies showing that supplementation of omega-3 has actually reduced the amount of endometriosis implants. Um, it's, it's really cool <laughs> when you start to yeah. look at this. Like this, this is the, you know, when there's a lot of humming and hawing about how can diet and lifestyle affect what's going on in my pelvis, it kind of doesn't make sense. Like what I chew and eat is going to affect those endometriosis implants of which I hear there's no cure. And here's all these studies all of a sudden saying, wait a second, if we increase your antioxidant intake, you are you know, pretty much guaranteed to have less symptoms based on some of these studies. You will right. decrease inflammation by increasing the amount of vitamin E you eat. You could maybe could reduce the actual size of your endo implants, maybe reduce them overall with omega-3s and vitamin C. Zinc, we know that, you know, is it could potentially be a pre-screening mechanism. The, the interesting thing too about all these nutrients is they're all fertility nutrients, right? They're almost mm -hmm. the exact nutrients that you need for fertility and for egg health. So if you're dealing with endometriosis and you know you're deficient in all these, it goes back to that, well, is your body protecting you from getting pregnant? Because you don't have the nutrients need to just fight the fire. Why would we get pregnant in the middle of a fire and grow a baby? Like we need to use these nutrients first and foremost for the emergency situation. And then we can think about procreating after all is said and done. Um, so it, it's, I love this stuff, right? I'm a nutritional therapist. This is how I, I work in my little corner of the world to help heal, um, some issues of endo, but it's, this is the exact diet that you, you know, we just talked to. It's all vegetable based with certain organ meats and cold water, fatty fish. And, um, that's the diet to start reversing these endometriosis related malnutrition issues. That's incredibly well said and actually just answered the next question, which was, you know, what are the, the basic <laughs> guidelines of a healing diet for endo? Um, but you know, that's, that is, 
really key. And I think it's also important to point out the fact that, you know, we have all of these studies on individual nutrients that can have a pretty significant impact on the severity and progression of this disease. Imagine if we were paying attention to all of those with the nutrient density of our diet. I mean, very few studies ever look at multiple interventions. The whole design of a scientific study is really meant to test one intervention. So like if vitamin C yeah. is great and omega-3s are great and zinc is great and selenium is great, like imagine if you were actually getting enough of all of these in your diet. Right. And that's where, I mean, endometriosis is so, it's so little funded, like to, to study anything with endo. I think it's like, it's a drop in the pond of the funding that goes into study things like cancer, but there are still a lot of studies. And so there's this big call, like we need more money for endo studies and we do, but let's look at what's already been studied and put together in something comprehensive that have someone put this information together like this, rather than saying that isolated E, um, vitamin E deficiency one, the isolated selenium deficiency, like put it together. And that's exactly what um, I've tried to do with Heal Endo is put the big picture together for people linking all this to say there are definite diet and lifestyle interventions. Um, one study, and this is, it's a little bit different, but it's really worth talking about. And it was a study they did on stress and endometriosis um, that they put these rats through a stress test. So they, they induce these rats to have endo and they put them in a, a stressful swimming situation where they're put in a bucket of water and they couldn't get out for 10 minutes. So these poor rats, right? They think they're going to die. There's no way out. There's no hope. Okay. They pull the rats out of the water. Oh, it was really stressful. When they opened them up, they saw that 10 minutes of chronic, chronic fight or flight situation, that stress increased the amount of endometriosis lesions themselves. It actually grew the endo and it increased inflammation in the pelvis. So that's like a mind-body connection that goes along with diet. That's, that's the lifestyle part, right? The diet and lifestyle is these things are dramatically contributing. They can be dramatically contributing to your own endometriosis without you realizing it. And why shifting things, toward, putting, putting the holistic picture together, like all these nutrients, the gut infection issues, the less stress, that may be able to heal your symptoms to a degree you never thought possible. Wow. Yeah, that's a really awesome study. And I think, you know, we've said it many times over the podcast of how much stress can affect every, all of us in a very biochemical kind of way that we don't really realize. Mm -hmm. I feel like we go through a stressful event and then, you know, we get over it and then we think it's, it's over and it's done with, but we don't really understand the biochemical changes that happen during that time. And I know for me, like this last week was just so stressful for just like ridiculous reasons. Um, and I can't even go into it, but I was just like, what is <laughs> happening in my life? And, um, and I just know that, you know, the way that we, that we're handling it in the more, in the moment is really important. And then also, um, um, trying to recover from that and just focusing on, on, uh, the recovery instead of just kind of pushing it aside and being like, it's, it's cool. You know, we're just, we're trained in this culture to just be like, it's fine. I'm strong. Yeah. Deal with it. Like stoic face, no big deal. I got this. Like, yeah. And it's just, it's, it does just a, a number on our, on, on our diseases. If we're dealing with a disease, a chronic disease, like a lot of people don't, um, feel stress. Um, but a lot of people with chronic diseases like endometriosis and it, obviously a lot of other chronic diseases do feel it and they feel the long-term effects of that stress. Mm -hmm. And that can really explain sometimes of like, you know, 
oh man, I had a flare in my symptoms, but I, I didn't do anything differently. I'm eating the same diet. I'm sleeping the same way. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what happened. And it's like, well, you know, what about that stressful event that you had last week? Like that was probably it. <laughs> yep. My, one of my clients had a really big flare from getting in a near car accident. So it was just like a really scary situation happened on the road. And she was down for a week with this huge flare because she, you know, thought she was going to get a head on collision. It was really scary. And that's what we trace it back to. Like it, a, a big stress reaction can increase your endo, especially for women who are very susceptible to it, such as the endometriosis population. I think there was, there was a study a long time ago, and it, you know, it's one of those kind of racist, uh, prejudiced studies. It, maybe it wasn't a study. It was just a train of thought that women with endometriosis were white, college-educated career women. And it was, therefore, it was a stress issue. And looking at it now is like, that was a few decades ago. And it was because they're only listening to white college educated women, right? Like women of color or women who were in poverty going in complaining of pelvic pain. Well, you could just push them aside. You know, it's not a big deal, but the other women were pushing for a diagnosis. So I think that that being uncovered as, you know, a complete fallacy changed a lot of our perception of us understanding how stress can contribute to endometriosis because it's very offensive when you have such debilitating pelvic pain and you have such a serious condition for someone to say, Oh, is that stress related? And you're like, it's so beyond stress. You have no idea what's going on in my pelvis. This is like, there's war going on in there and it's the most painful thing you could ever experience. 10 of 10. However, (laughs) it's important to take deep breath and say, it really could be partially related to stress and that chronic stress, that, that bear that's chasing you all the time on it, you know, standing up the, all the blood sugar dysregulation, how you said you were really stressed for ridiculous reasons. I find most women are stressed for, that's where the, the, the chronic stress often comes from. Like we can blame it on a job or, you know, like a family issue, but often it's all the little things that are adding up. Like you get to the end of the week and you're like, okay, good. Those are gone. Mm-hmm. But for most women, we carry them with us all the time. And what's really stressful, like if you put a name to it, oh, it's because I read the news every day and gosh, that news is really stressful or the social media, like these things that we can really control a lot more than we realize. And when we start cutting those things out, that's when, you know, just taking a deep breath or like how many people have taken a deep breath yet today, like just stop for a second, calm down their face. Um, well, we can control it more than we realize, but you're right. It's so hard when our society breathes stress, right? Like we're just, caffeine injected Mm -hmm. (laughs) beings that were just told to keep going and going and fertility is a slow moving sport like there's a time for fast and time for slow and when you're a healing from endometriosis and b trying to get pregnant that's a slow sport and it's a time for healing it's a time for not moving the speed of light um it's a time for you know putting a name to those stresses and trying to deal with them as much as possible so you can calmly get pregnant I love that. I'm gonna, I was just thinking, we're going to put that on our Instagram quote. It's a slow. Oh. <laughs> Which a one is it? a slow sport. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the book. Tell us all about this incredible book that you created. It's called The Four Week Endometriosis Diet Plan. And it's much more than just a dietary plan. So tell us what you've included in here and kind of how you structured the meal plans. And about yeah, the so- batch cooking. Oh, the batch cooking. Oh, the ba- yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess it, they, the, the publisher named the book, but it's so much more about, it's supposed to help people shift into this endometriosis lifestyle, right? Not like you're going to do a four week endometriosis diet plan and come out the other side, like a brand new woman, totally healed. Um, but 
the, the hardest part about that book is when the publisher approached me saying they wanted a diet plan. It's my worst nightmare. And it's why I don't do um, group programs is because every woman who comes to me is completely different. Like we do completely different meal plans. They're, they're completely deficient and completely separate things. Like some people need more of the meat. Some people need more veggies, some, whatever it is. Um, so to make a diet plan that's going to go, you know, for, to the masses was really scary. So I just delved into exactly what we talked about on this podcast. Well, we know we need way more antioxidants. We know we need way more certain nutrients, um, less stress, more movement, uh, blood sugar control. Like, what do these things even really mean to anyone who's, you know, not obsessed with it like us three are? Uh, so I put that on paper, and that's what came out for the four weeks. The way I structured it was start with breakfast. And I didn't want women who, you know, they're not even in the kitchen. You know, you're, you're, your big Friday at-home meal is like macaroni and cheese with broccoli, right, from a box or something. That used to be me. Whole Foods, like, <laughs> me too. That was my literal health food. <laughs> the broccoli, like, yeah. It's like, uh, who cares about the mac and cheese? I ate broccoli. So you also have a body that's not equipped to handle six, seven, eight cups of veggies per day, right? That could cause some GI distress with all that increased fiber, um, we want to move slow so women feel good doing it and you don't feel like a failure because you missed out and you don't feel like a failure because your body is responding negatively to all these, you know, supposedly healthy swaps. So it starts with breakfast, um, making sure that your breakfast is absolutely set, setting you up for blood sugar control throughout the day. Like no skimping on breakfast, you're eating a solid meal. Um, once you have breakfast under your belt, then we just move through every week you add in a few more meals we always batch cook so you have leftovers. So instead of having, you're making, you know, a separate breakfast, lunch, and dinner for Monday through Sunday, you're actually making maybe like five or six meals and then doing leftovers or using leftovers for a separate meal um, on top of that. So it's just about being a little creative. I didn't want women to feel like they have to always follow a recipe. I want them to be intuitive cooks that they end up going in the kitchen and having a spaghetti squash and not having to look up a recipe, but just knowing how to bake it. And then all these things you can do now with the cooked spaghetti squash. So that was, I guess that was my overarching goal is to get women comfortable in the kitchen, eating whole foods, um, not feeling too overwhelmed uh, and really enjoying the process uh, rather than, you know, just eating these foods they think are supposed to be healthy without them having flavor or, you know, taking 10 steps. Well, it's exciting. Like there, there should be, and I hope that women who are reading this and based on my experience with the book, I definitely think that you've accomplished this. Like it should be exciting that you have a tool in your hands that can help you heal in all of the ways that you have control over. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. Like there's the, it's the push for surgery, right? Is like the big endometriosis discussion. Like you should have one surgery one time. And um, I totally agree with that on a lot of levels. The problem is the surgery is very expensive. There's only a number of endometriosis experts in the world who perform the surgery and it, it might be up to 50 now, but it was, you know, when I was looking, there was like 30 and they're really expensive and your insurance probably won't cover it. So you're looking at 40 to $50,000 out of pocket for this excision surgery. That would be great if you could get, um, but maybe not everyone can afford it, right? It's like a huge out of pocket expense. Like so many women with endometriosis don't have the means to do that. Um, and then there's other issues too, like a lot of, there's women with endometriosis who have stage one or two, like I had diagnosed two both times, but my symptoms were so 
freaking horrible. And that's for me why diet and lifestyle could be such a huge factor in my healing. That's my belief. Um, so yeah, it gives you exactly those steps that you can do at home to start, you know, pushing the needle in your favor and healing from this disease. Yeah. And I've actually, I I mean, not actually, I did take a good look at these, um, meal plans and I, big stamp of approval. I think it's, it's really, um, heavy on nutrient dense food. I feel like if these women really put their trust into this book and followed it exactly, or, you know, stuck to the meal plans, um, then they would absolutely find healing. Um, for sure. I feel like they would, would, uh, experience a huge relief in symptoms and just, um, a lot of other potential symptoms that they might be experiencing, like the hair loss that you mentioned, or the brittle hair mm-hmm. and the dry skin and, you know, everything else that comes with malnutrition and chronic inflammation. Yeah. Um, but along those lines, what I know in the very beginning, you said that it took you like 30 days before you actually started seeing some improvement. And then of course, the longer you did it, the more improvement that you found. So I think one thing that, um, if people don't see immediate improvement that they give up kind of too early. And so what would you say Mm -hmm. around that? Like how much time should somebody give this particular type of diet? Well, it's a good question. There's so many different types of endo, right? Like Mm -hmm. as far as severity of symptoms and then what type of symptoms you're experiencing. Um, And I would say if you're like a general, a general endo woman, like you have, you don't have some, too many extreme symptoms stick with it for like you know five or six months wait to see improvement happen slowly especially you know if you're very depleted or very stressed things will slowly start to shift but the the thing i i want to reiterate for the chronics out there and these are most of my clients that i get and they have some severe issues going on is if you don't feel better in one to two months like go you need to be seeing someone some sort of a specialist a functional medicine doctor, because there's often really, really key underlying issues that go hand in hand with endometriosis that you should be addressing right now, like a chronic gut infection. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably not going to eat your way out of that. Like you can balance the microbiome, you can help fix some certain types of simple dysbiosis, you know, pathogenic overgrowth, some simple ones. But if you have something like a raging SIBO infection, and you're trying to follow the diet plan, um, it's, you know, probably not going to happen. You're you're going to need some extra help on that regard. So, um, so yeah, I'd say check in on who you are and your own symptoms and, um, and then do the, doing the lifestyle stuff along with it. Cause I do see some women focus so much on diet that they get really stressed out or, um, they're not focusing on that. They're not sleeping or they're watching screens too much. It's, it's a, it's a holistic thing. So you could check in, okay, well, I'm doing the diet stuff, but let's look at my lifestyle now and see where I can make some improvements there. Yeah. That's a great point and um, brings us great to <laughs> right to our next question. Um, I know that we actually t- talked uh, about this quite a few times throughout the episode, um, but what role does lifestyle play in endometriosis? And I guess let's actually skip that because I think we've touched on it quite a bit, but what are some of your top recommendations in this area? I know that we talked about stress. Is there anything else that you think would make a huge impact um, on this particular disease. Yes. And it's something I actually haven't mentioned yet, but it's, um, it's up there for me in equality as nutrition and it's movement. So movement completely different from exercise. It's natural movement. 
um, and restoring core function. So, so many women with endometriosis have pelvic floor dysfunction, um, and it could be caused by the endo when you have chronic pain for so long, like you can tense your pelvic floor um, until, you know, it's brittle and not working the way it's supposed to be, like relaxing and working when it needs to. So um, chronic pelvic floor dysfunction can contribute dramatically to the pain itself. Um, and then the, the core dysfunction aspect is there's so many women who have extreme endo belly. It's such a big issue. It's an embarrassing issue, you know, as much as it can be a painful issue to look so bloated all the time. And um, something that may be contributing more to this than even a GI issue is um, core dysfunction. And the, the lack of say core infrastructure that's actually holding your organs up and in place and when you have a uterus that's like tipped or retroverted um you know it's it's out of place we're often told that's normal like okay well a lot of people have that the thing is that it's common but it's not normal and if your uterus is out of position you're not going to get as much blood flow to the uterus without that blood flow you don't have the lymph right you don't have the immune system coming in you don't have that inflammation being kept in check the blood is your it's your lifeline to everything you put you know, into your body. So in order to help rehab that part, like to actually rehab the pelvis structure, to rehab how your breathing every day is impacting endometriosis pain, it's a, a crucial tenant of uh, my whole program. I, I, I have a lot of women come that I refer out to for core dysfunction and pelvic floor treatment. So if you're out there and you have like kind of that lower belly pooch, that just doesn't go away. Like you can't even suck it in because your muscles are so atrophied that you don't know how to um, actually knit the lower abdominals together. Know that that can be contributing to the severity of your endometriosis. Like it's not something that should be looked over as something aesthetic that needs to be addressed through like, um, you know, a HIIT class or something. It's actually retraining your core to work correctly, which in turn will support your organs, which in turn will stop so much of that um, pressure on your pelvic floor. Yeah. Really, really great point to talk about mm -hmm. because there are definitely are some structural things that can come up with this issue. And there probably isn't enough focus on that, even in like the functional medicine community. You know, we're focusing on a lot of those internal issues and the gut issues and the inflammatory stuff and the oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is really important to address the, the structural stuff as well. Um, so yeah. that kind of brings us to our last question. And maybe the movement thing would be one of these things on the list, but tell us like, what are your top two or three pieces of advice for women who are struggling with this diagnosis at the end of the day, from this interview, what do you want them to know? Hmm. Oh, oh there's so much I could say. Um, you know, since it is a, a fertility podcast, I guess I would say, Check in with your body if you're dealing with endometriosis-related infertility and like, just do a scan and ask yourself how really healthy you are. Like, If you took out all the stimulants throughout the day, what would your life be like? And a lot of us are really sick. You know, Beyond the endometriosis, there is like a big fatigue factor. Maybe there's chronic migraines or like the malnutrition issue, you know, skin issues. There's all kinds of stuff. Like, a healthy person might have one symptom throughout a day, but I know I was having like upwards of 150 symptoms throughout the day, every day that was pretty awful. So sometimes when we're trying to get pregnant, I think we, we see that life is normal because that's all we've dealt with. But the success for pregnancy for so many people is the positive pregnancy test. And that doesn't include the realization that you're going to have to grow a baby. And then the reality hits when that baby is born, you're not going to be sleeping. Your life is 
you know, it's over as you know it in so many wonderful ways, but it's also the most exhausting thing you'll ever do is have a child. And my son is two now and we're still, right. He's just, he's one of those active kids. You don't know if you're going to get one of those kids at the playground, one of those boys that just run circles forever. Right. Like I never thought I'd have one of those kids, but I do. And is your body prepared for it? Like now's the time to prepare your body for that mother that you're going to be rather than just get pregnant. Like you want the baby, but the baby's going to come with some really serious demands on your life. And uh, it's so important to be healthy so that you can be there to offer those demands the way you're going to want to. Um, you don't want to be a sick mom. So lay the groundwork now before you have kids because life is going to explode after kids <laughs> and you won't have the time necessarily to invest in the health and in the healing and in the rebuilding of, you know, a new body. Incredible yeah. advice. Perfect yeah. advice. And that really takes into <laughs> a lot of the things that we talked about on today's episode. I think the checking in with yourself is, is really important. Like how healthy are you really? And I think a lot of women have, I guess, a little bit of a distorted view of what that health looks like because Maybe mm -hmm. they're even women without endometriosis, like if their doctor hasn't been able to diagnose them with a disease, like in conventional medicine, that means that you're healthy. Like if you're not diagnosed with a disease, then right. you're healthy. And that's, you know, we as, as nutritional therapists have a totally different definition of that. It's not just about like the absence of disease. It's about true, optimal, vibrant health and wellness. Do you actually feel like you have the energy and stamina and lack of symptoms that you need to be able to get through your day and enjoy your life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And when you start cataloging it down, like all the little pains, like that nagging knee pain and the afternoon headache and all these things, you, you can, you put the big picture together and realize, even though it's your normal, like it's not normal to feel like that. Is that like, you should feel pretty good throughout the day without any sort of painkillers or stimulants and it's almost impossible to feel until you get there. Um, so, so keep searching anyone out there who feels like you've done a lot. I think there's, there's so much to explore when healing from endometriosis that um, it's good to just keep your options open as far as, you know, what next thing can you do? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Katie. Yeah, for, thank you for Katie. joining us. Yeah. Do you have Thanks anything so else? Much. You yeah, to, great. Anything else you wanted to add, Dr. Haley? No, you, uh, I'm really impressed by you, Katie. I think you really know your stuff and I hope that we'll be able to have you on the podcast or the podcast again here in the next year or so. Oh yeah, that would be awesome. Just let me know when. So we will go ahead and link to the four week endometriosis diet plan. Um, one thing that we didn't cover, but is also an amazing resource that Katie has created for everybody is a, an ebook on what is it called? Katie, what's the ebook called? It's just the Endobelly ebook. Endobelly ebook. And this is all about yeah. that all very important connection between gut health and endometriosis. And it is a, a hefty dose of information. And if any of you out there are kind of still struggling to make this connection and really understand how that gut health has such a significant impact on endometriosis, that is a great resource for you guys to get your hands on. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes for the episode as well. And you can find all of that through the link in this week's episode description. And just thank you so much again, Katie, for being here. It was lovely speaking with you, another nutritional therapist colleague out there that's doing great work for women's health. Yeah. We appreciate you. Oh, it's been an honor speaking with you guys. It really has.